All right. Is this on? There we go. We are jumping into the book of 1 Kings. So if you got your Bibles, um, super exciting to, to start a new series. I know last week, if you weren't here, I just did an overview of how 1 Kings fits into the grand story of the Bible. And so now we're jumping in. So we're still in chapter one. Growing up, uh, my family and I would take a trip out to Washington State for a family vacation. And um, when I was really little, um, the family was much bigger that would come. Um, And my dad grew up with like 30 or 40 in between their cousins. And only one of them, maybe two of them were girls. So they were all... They're all boys, and, uh, and so I grew up going, camping, sleeping outside with all of his cousins, and a lot of they weren't married at the time, and, and so we're, one of the things that I would look forward to at this trip, we, we'd be on a lake, and one of the things that they would do is they would have one of those big island tubes, you know, you know where people kind of lounge on, like on a lake or whatever, like it's a big tube, it's like an island, and one of the, the most, the, the, the thing that I looked forward to watching every single year was when all of the cousins would do a battle royale, king of the floating tube in the middle of the lake. And you get, the beach is filled with people. And so it would literally, everyone would be watching this, like everyone there cheering, um, laughing, you know, as, as they're battling each other. And typically the older cousins, the stronger, buffer ones would always dominate, right? Um, but it's still fun being the little guy trying to take them out. And so I would just love watching. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get involved. I'd drown. I would literally drown, probably. So I remember just laughing. Everyone would be laughing, cheering. And it was almost sure, it was every single time, one of them got pantsed while they were doing this. And the whole beach would see it. The whole beach would be... It was just a memory that I have. It's so funny. Um, <clears throat> who would be king... So the question would be, we'd be like taking, making bets. Who would be king of the floating tube? Who's going to win? What cousin's going to get it this time? As we begin 1 Kings, God's people, uh, God's people are at a crucial moment in their history. Very crucial. King David has been on the throne for years, and he's been a good king. It started off great, but after his adultery and taking the census later on in 2 Samuel... It kind of takes a nosedive, even more, is, uh, just with his sons. But in the end, <clears throat> it's no question that David was a good king. But now, he's dying. He's dying. And an end of an era is upon them. And so the question of the text, the question of chapter 1, is who would be king? They used to say, long live King David, but now it's long live King who? We don't know. Yeah, question mark. And that's the title of my sermon. Long live king, dot, 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 who? And what unfolds in the chapter is kind of a king of the hill, king of the floating tube scenario. There's kind of a battle for the throne. And it is much more dire than the situation I was growing up. This is like lives are on the line. The nation is on the line here. And the question is, Will God show up? Will God put the right king on the throne? 
The text can be broken into four sections tonight. There's 53 verses, so four sections. Think of four categories, four mental boxes, all right? You can stuff things in as I preach, all right? Let's start in verse, the first section, starting in verse 1 through 10. And as we go down, we're going to be looking at four different lessons, four principles as we go through this text. First Kings 1. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And, all they, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. You've got to think, Israel is a pretty hot... It's in a desert, okay? So King David is so old, he cannot get warm. Therefore the servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in, in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag. That's what I'm going to name my daughter. Abishag. I'm just kidding. The Shunammite. (laughs) Interesting name. And brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. That's a sexual term. He he did not know her sexually. Okay? (coughs) COVID. Um, (coughs) sorry, I'm just kidding. Um, verse five, now Adonijah, the son of Haggit exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him like a caravan. His father had never, so his father, David had never at any time displeased him by asking why have you done thus or, or so? So David's kind of just passive. He's not really, he didn't tell him anything. And Adonijah was also a very handsome man, very capable man. And he was born next to Absalom. Absalom was his brother who, who had died um, in 2 Samuel. He conferred, so he conferred with Joab, the son of Zuriah, who was commander of David's army, and with Abathar, which was one of the high priests. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the other high priest, and Benaiah, another commander of, of uh, the military, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Re, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. And we'll stop there. The first point is the self-exalting prince. The self-exalting prince. If I could characterize these first ten verses. Now, this isn't the first time David is way too passive as a father. He does not... He is not a role model to follow when it comes to fatherhood at all. All four of his sons, they rebel against him. Um, Absalom, actually just a little history. One of his sons, Amnon, um, raped his half-sister. And David knew about it but did nothing. And because of that, Absalom, Amnon's brother, David's son, assassinated him. And later, almost successfully overthrew David. He, he, he's planned an insurrection and almost took the throne while David was alive. But Absalom was killed in battle. So David's already lost two of his sons. 
actually three right after Bathsheba gave birth as well for his sin. And so here we go again, except this time, David is not only active and more capable, he's at a point where he should be put into a nursing home. He's old. He's cold. Okay? He's old and he's cold. And he could hardly keep warm. And he is asked to have a human heater at his disposal, though it doesn't seem like it was anything sexual. So think about it. Looking at appearances, David, who is the king, you see this old, decrepit, old man that can't do anything who's bedridden. And you're like, do we really even have a king? Right? He's not fit to being king. He's decaying. Now, we need a transition in the throne. And so David's oldest son, Adonijah, who's the Brad Pitt or the Thor of the family, he is the handsome one, right? He's ruggedly handsome. The ladies love him. He's strong. He's capable. He's the obvious next king, right? He's, he's tall. He's a warrior. He's next in line to the throne based on age. He has all the giftedness of being a great leader from the outward appearance. And verse 6 says that David never said anything to him. He never at any time dis- displeased him. Why have, you done th- uh, why have you done thus? And so David, didn't. he was passive. He never stepped in to discipline his sons. That's what fathers do. Some of you, you shirk at your parents' discipline. Parents who love their kids discipline their kids. Okay? Parents who don't discipline their kids hate their kids. I'm just quoting Proverbs. He who spares the rod hates his own son. And so we see David, he's being passive. He's bedridden. And Adonijah is like, my dad, he's the old man. I'm just going to take the throne. And so he assumes the king. He doesn't talk to his father. He just assumes the kingdom. And he, what does he do? <laughs> it's, what, does he, what does it say? Verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, another great name for my daughter, exalted himself. He exalted himself and said, I will be king. And he gathers some of David's servants. He parades himself in the city. And then he throws himself a royal, uh, a royal feast with all of his family except who? Verse 10. The prophet is not there, God's prophet. And of course, Solomon is not there as well. What is the significance for us? How does this apply to us today? Adonijah's name is literally translated, Yah is master, or Yahweh is master. But the irony is that really it should be translated, Adonijah is master, right? He exalts himself. He is the Lord of his own life. He is so filled. We have a human illustration of pride. And pride takes many forms. And in the text, we see three different forms of pride here. Self-exaltation. That's what pride is. It's a love of self. It's self-exaltation. Or maybe you're like, well, I'm kind of quiet. Therefore, I'm not a prideful person. Well, you could still exalt yourself in your mind and in your heart by comparing yourself to other people. And there's three forms of pride that I see in the text. The first is a pride of entitlement. You know what entitlement is? It's this idea that you automatically think that you deserve something just because of who you are, right? It's kind of like those who think they deserve to make a huge living wage by flipping hamburgers, right? I deserve this. This job is so beneath me. 
how could I ever do that, right? They're entitled. And so maybe entitlement takes a lot of different forms. I think of Adam and Eve. They thought they were entitled to eat of the fruit, to eat of every tree. God gave them every tree, but really I deserve this one. It's just a self-focus. And Adonijah, he's like, I'm entitled to the throne. It's mine. No one's stepping up up to me. It's just mine. He just presumes on the Lord. It's kind of like the self-righteous Pharisees. They feel, because of their good works, because of their religious knowledge, they presume on the king of kings to just accept them into heaven. They feel like they earned it, that they are entitled to eternal life. But really, that's just pride. Self-righteousness is pride. The second thing that we see, a form of pride, is the pride of rebellion. I will be king. I will be king. Is that not the same words that Adam and Eve said in their hearts? The Lord is not king. I am. I'm going to take the fruit. I want to be like God. It's, it's not just, this wasn't just an innocent raising up of himself to be king. This is rebellion. He doesn't consult his father. And he doesn't invite Solomon. He doesn't invite the prophet. Which meant that Solomon was a dead person, pretty much. Like, he's going to take him out once he's king. He commits treason. This is a coup. This is, this is treachery against the king. David, ultimately. He rebels. And he parades himself in his rebellion. And he gives credence to other people to rebel with him. But then the third form of pride, right? Not only do we struggle with entitlement and rebellion when we rebel against authority, your parents, a coach, a teacher, we have problems with authority as well. God. The third form of pride is the pride of appearances. Pride of appearances. Remember the story when Solomon was to go pick a king and he comes, goes to David's family? And David is off with the sheep and Jesse lines up all of his brothers and Solomon's like, oh, certainly a king from this line. I mean, these, these mighty men, they're so strong and handsome. Look at them. And he goes through all of them and, and God says, none of those will be the king. But little ruddy David out there who is the shepherd king, he's going to be the king. And it says that man looks at outward appearance, the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And isn't that true of our own culture? It's all about outward appearances. It's all about who's the most gifted, who looks the best, who has the most talents. We'll put them in leadership, and it has nothing to do with character. Nothing. It's a pride of appearances. Why? It says he was also a very handsome man. So the people, they thought, oh yeah, just like Saul, let's make him king. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And perhaps your life is just consumed with the way consumed with thinking about the way that you look you're consumed with appearances you know that's why you care so much about what you eat your diet or why you work out possibly why some of you have eating disorders as well sadly it's because you care you're controlled by your appearance this is pride it's self-exaltation it's a hyper focus on self and we see all these things in the text For Adonijah, Yah is not master. He is. He is the the king of his own life. And he throws himself a rager. 
He throws himself a party and they're feasting, they're drinking. And he's like, it's game over. I am the king. No one is stepping up to me. I am the king of the hill, king of the floating tube. Long live King Adonijah, right? Pride comes before fall. Let's keep going in the text here. Verse 11 and on. What happens? Then Nathan, verse 11, follow with me in the text. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Go in at once, go save your life and go to the king. Go into the, go into the king's chamber and say to him, did not my Lord, the king, swear to your servant saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. He's quoting First Chronicles 22, verse 9. Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking to the king, I will come and I will confirm your words. So, verse 15, Bathsheba goes to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and cold. And Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. And Bathsheba bowed. She lowered herself to the ground and paid homage to the king. He showed, she showed reverence to him. And the king said, what do you desire? Or pretty much literally in the Hebrew, what is it? Like he's literally so tired and he can't move. He's like, what is it? That's, that's all he says. Barely gets three words out in Hebrew. All right. What do you desire? <laughs> Verse 17. And she said, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord, your God saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king. Although you, my Lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king. Abathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, and I and my son Solomon will be counted as sinners or offenders. And then we put to death. While she was speaking, verse 22, with the king, Nathan the prophet storms in. <clears throat> and they, uh, they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and, the serv- and your servant Solomon has not been invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord, the king, and you have not told your servants who would sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. I'm going to pause there. The second point is the humble servants of the king. We see the humble servants of the king. The scene ends with Adonijah's party and then kind of goes, moves into the behind the scenes in the kingdom to see what's happening. And could you imagine just being Solomon or Bathsheba? 
you're not invited to this new king's royal feast and you know you're a dead person now. You're against them. It's pretty much no difference than hearing a death sentence. All seems lost. The king is so old, all he could do, all he could do is eat, you know, the ancient version of jello and pudding. The Brad Pitt of the family is parading as king. That is until Nathan the prophet is sprung into action. His plan is to send the king into the, day, uh, the chamber, and then he comes right after him. And we just see that Nathan is a man of action. And throughout the text, we see these little hints of the opposite of Adonijah, of humility. Seen in Bathsheba, Nathan and Solomon. We see this picture of humility, and we see it in two ways. First, a humble posture. A humble posture. What is it when Bathsheba does when she comes in? She bows, right? She bows. She pays homage to the king. She bows. Nathan bows all the way to the ground, his face to the ground. She respects authority. He respects authority. She is not entitled. She comes with nothing. She has great needs and she goes to the king with them for help. What's more humiliating than that, right? I I am in need. I need help. And so I'm going to seek help. That's humble. And so I have to ask your question. What is your heart posture toward the king? Toward your savior, toward King Jesus. Is that, is it one of humility? Is it one where Bathsheba over and over and over again calls herself, and Nathan uses the same word, and Solomon, the word servant. And that's the second thing, a humble posture and then a humble title. They don't exalt themselves. They don't, they're not entitled. They come in as humble servants. They call themselves servants five times in verse 17, 19, 26, 27, and even in verse 33. And here we see the contrast. Adonijah, people of this world, those who don't know Jesus, they're all about exalting themselves. But God's people, people who love the kingdom, they're ones who bow. They're ones who come under. They're ones who are self-forgetful, right? That's humility. It's self-forgetfulness. It's forgetting yourself. It's putting the interests of others before yourself. And so they come in humbly, and the king accepts them, right? Does God accept the pride or proud or does he accept the humble? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so what is your posture? Is it self-exaltation or is it humility? Do your actions say, I will be king? You're the king of your life? Are you presuming on God on the basis of your own good works that he is just to accept you into his kingdom? That's, that's what proud people do. But those who are in Christ, they, they know that they don't deserve to be called a child of God. They come humbly. They bow. They recognize their authority. They recognize the authorities God has put over them. Parents. Humility. I'm no longer the Lord of my life, but a servant. So here we have two types of kingdoms. One that's all about self, and the other that's all about Humility. So who's it going to be then? That's the next question. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be King Adonijah or King Solomon? So let's continue on with the story. Verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And this is the very central aspect of this chapter. It's the most important part. Call Bathsheba into me, and she stood in the presence of the king. 
And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba again bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. I mean, it's like his dynasty, his kingdom. King David then said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, his own donkey, and bring him down to Gihon, which is where there's springs. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, saying, Amen! May the Lord, the God of my lord the king, say so. And the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord king David. Okay? So Zadok, we'll keep going. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. So all the people there. And verse 40, And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. <laughs> it's awesome. The first thing that you got to see in this passage is that old and cold and decrepit David is now just snapped into, into action. He goes from pretty much death to like resurrection, right? He's zealous. He, he's awakened again. His heart is stirred. He's revived. He's no longer passive. He's now risen. And in verse 28 through 31, it's, it's the very center of this chapter. It's the most important part. And it's the first time Yahweh, God, is mentioned in this whole entire passage. And according to God's word, David decrees that Solomon must be king. And how is David sure of this? I want to read 1 Chronicles 22.9. It says, Behold, a son shall be born to you, God speaking to David, you shall, uh, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So this, that was before Solomon was even born. God chose him to be king. And so it was the word. So what was it that stirred David up? Was it not the word of God? Was it not remembering this oath? It was the word of God that, that stirred David to rise, to become zealous again, to become alive. You know, old, old alive man. So he calls the high priest, the prophet, and commands them, anoint King Solomon, place him on my mule, which was significant. 
Why a mule? Okay? Not only were mules mixed breeds, so which actually points to the future king, Gentile Jew, anyway. Mules and donkeys are used as mounts of royalty. So what is David saying? He's making a public declaration by having Solomon, his heir, ride the king's mule. He is the king. And they bless him and they parade him through Jerusalem and the people love it. They're not protesting this. They love it. They're rejoicing so much so that the earth is split. The earth is rejoicing almost. It's kind of pointing to the future there in the New Testament. This is the start of a new era, a new kingdom. There's excitement and joy. So in the end, who's the winner of the king of the hill in this book? Is it the most handsome? Is it the most gifted? Is it the oldest? The most qualified? Or is it the humble one? The nobody? Solomon doesn't even say a word in this whole entire chapter. It's almost like he's not even a part of it. Yet God chooses his humble servant, Solomon. And the king and the kingdom is saved. So what then happens to the traitor Adonijah? Okay. What happens to Adonijah? <laughs> this is awesome. All right. Verse 41. Verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it. And as they finished feasting, <laughs> so they're they're in the middle of their feast, all right? Their party. And when Joab heard the sound of a trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? Like, imagine throwing yourself a birthday party in your backyard, and then your neighbor throws one 50 times bigger, right? That's pretty much what's going on here. It's awesome. And, and so he hears the trumpet blast, and, and he's like, what's going on here? What's this uproar? Verse 42, while he was speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest came. And then Adonijah said, come in. For you are a worthy man, and you're going to bring me good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites, which is another army, and the Pelethites. They're like mercenaries. And they had him ride on the king's mule at, uh, Adonijah and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet had have anointed him king at Gihon and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David saying, may your God make, make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself. Now, he's not just bedridden. He gets up and he bows himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each ran away. And, and Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar in the tabernacle. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death. So now he's the servant with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. 
So King Solomon sent and they brought him down to the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your house. Last point is we see submission to the king. Submission to the king. I love the drama of this. Remember the scene in The Dark Knight Rises when Bruce Wayne is thrown into a pit. Bane breaks his back, right? Bane is just, he's destroying Gotham. It's about to blow up. And then Gordon, the police commissioner, is sentenced to exile. And he's walking on the ice. Then he sees a flare. And he picks up the flare. And, and Bat, Batman's there. And he's like, light it, right? And with this deep voice. And, and he lights it. And then the flame goes all the way up the bridge. And then it like is the big bat symbol. And Bane goes, impossible, right? He's like, shoot, like I thought I won, right? And it's exactly, it's exactly what's going on here. Adonijah is feasting, right? It's like when Lord Voldemort thought that he won. He's bringing Harry Potter, right? And then just springs up. And he's like, what? what what's going on here? It's the exact same thing. He, he's throwing a party and then there's a bigger party. And, he, and then he's like, Jonathan, what is this good news? This, this good news that you bring? He's like, no, 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 it's not good news. It's not good news at all. It's really bad news. It's damning news for you. You're a dead man, Adonijah. The one who rebelled against is now, the one, now that you've rebelled, it's bad news for you. The good news for the people is bad news for those who reject the king. Right? It's not good news for him. And that's the response of the wicked. When they hear that the king, there's one king who rules and it's not them. What is their response? It's fear and trembling. That's what happens. They scatter. They run. Adonijah's fearing for his own life. And where does he go? It's actually the only smart thing he does in this whole entire chapter. He runs to the very place where guilty sinners ought to run. He runs to the altar and he grabs onto the horns. And the horns is where the priest would sprinkle the blood. It's where the atonement was made. But I don't think he's going there out of a heart that wants to be. He's, he's probably mad and he's fearful for his life. His motives were selfish. His heart was still hard. But he runs to the most sacred place and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. Lawfully, Solomon could have put him to death. But what does he do? He shows him grace. He says, if you are a worthy man, you can live. But if not, you will die. In other words, if he submits to my rule, you will live. But if not... You will die. Who are we in the story? We like to see ourselves as the hero. But we're all like Adonijah, who is like our father Adam. We are. We're not much different than him. He knew his father was in charge, and ultimately God is the one who chooses kings. Yet he exalted himself instead. He worshipped himself rather than God. He obeyed his own desires rather than God's law. And he exalted himself as king. I will be the king of my life. And how often do we say the same thing with our actions? James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's word is clear that there is only one king. There's only one king in this life. And those who reject him who disobey him, deserve death. The wages of sin is death. God is your owner. He is your creator. 
You owe him allegiance. And just like Adonijah, our only hope of mercy comes from outside of us. Adonijah's only hope of living is if the king shows him mercy, right? That's his only hope. He needs a king who will show him mercy. And Solomon shows him that mercy. And Adonijah, he does the only, the only good thing is that he runs to the altar. He runs to the place where you must atone for sins. It's where guilty sinners must go. And in the same way, if you recognize your own pride, your own sin, you need to run to a better altar. You need to run not to cling on to the horns of your good works or the horns of a literal altar, but you need to cling to a better king, an eternal king who would come hundreds of years later from the line of David. And he, like Solomon, was chosen to be king. He was anointed not with oil, but with the Holy, with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He was paraded on a mule, was he not? As they laid palm branches down and said, Hosanna, Hosanna. He would come to bring rest and peace, not just to Israel, but to the world. But in a way that they would never expect. For unlike Adonijah, this king had no former majesty that, he should, that we should look on him. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 52, 13. He did not exalt himself, but was exalted, not on a literal throne, but upon a cross, right? This king was exalted on a cross to die as God's humble suffering servant. Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is the Messiah. And what does it say in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Remember when Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, let me give you advice to save your life. Go to the king. In the same way, take my advice as God's servant tonight to save your own life and run to the king, Jesus, for forgiveness, for your sins. Otherwise, there is no hope. Your only hope comes from outside of yourself. Is if King Jesus shows you mercy. And the good news is he is a merciful God. He is a merciful king. He receives sinners. Stop trying to play king of the hill with God. Sin, what is sin doing? It's taking God off his throne and replacing yourself there. That's what it is. And if that's you, you need to run to that king for in repentance and help. For mercy, stop playing king of the hill with God, but instead bow to him, submit to him, come under his rule and reign by faith and receive eternal life. That is the good news for all. Don't reject the king, come to him. In Matthew 12, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Some, something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. He is the true king, the good king, the humble servant. And those who are in Christ, they are not known for exalting themselves, but for exalting Christ. So, run to Him. Do not reject Him. That's, that, that's the point of the story, is we need a King, and God has provided that in Christ. That's good news. Let me pray.
Father God, thank you so much for this passage. Lord, I just pray that you would use it in their lives. Show them the, just the beauty of the text. And show them the hard need for a king. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to be exalted on a cross for sinners. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.